The way you see people depends on how you look at them. It sounds obvious, right? The way you see people depends on how you look at them. You're thinking, duh. But bear with me here for a second. Let's say every morning on your way to work, you stop by Starbucks. And when you go in, most mornings you have the same barista there. She's young, about college age. She's pretty and she knows it. And most mornings you're a couple minutes late to work. And to be honest, you think it's her fault because instead of you know, just doing her job and getting through the line and giving everybody their coffee like she should, she spends a little too much time being a little bit too interested in everybody's life. And she pays a little bit too much attention to especially her male customers. Seems like every guy under the age of 50 is eligible for her. She's really putting herself out there, batting her eyes and all that. And you, in fact, you've even seen her write her number on a, on, on a cup and give it to a, a male married man there, and she gets good tips, but it's just, it's just ridiculous how she flirts like that. Uh, how do you see her? Well, if you look at her through the eyes of a judge, you see a girl who's got no sense of decency. She's got no shame. She's not a lady. She's going to waste away her youth hopping around from boy to boy and bed to bed. The eyes of a judge. But if you look at her with the eyes of a doctor, you see a girl who's hurting, perhaps because of sexual abuse in her past from her stepfather or a previous boyfriend. You see that behind all that makeup, she's really asking a question. Do I matter? Am I damaged goods? Would anybody care enough to look past the shell and know and love the real me? When you look at her with the eyes of a doctor, you see a girl with hurts that God can heal. The way you see people Depends on how you look at them. There's that one guy at work that nobody else likes. Uh, he's already been divorced twice. He's only in his 30s, and both of his ex-wives are now suing him for past child support that he never paid. He's a deadbeat dad, and when he does happen to one day finally pay attention to his kids and go to his daughter's softball game, he gets and makes a big spectacle yelling at the ump. I mean, the guy is ridiculous. And now he's living with a woman and her kid. He's not married to her. And last weekend, he got drunk and in a rage, he slapped that woman around pretty good. She called the cops and he spent a night in jail. Then she got a restraining order taken out on him. And then this morning, you saw him in his office on a dating website already looking for another woman. How do you see that man? Well, through the eyes of a judge, you see a womanizing scumbag, you see an overgrown boy who tries to make himself feel strong and important by physically dominating weaker and more vulnerable women. You see the eyes of a judge. You see a man who, 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 well, to be honest, he's scared of commitment and he's dishonest in his work. He'll never make anything of himself. The eyes of a judge. But with the eyes of a doctor, you look and you see a little boy inside that shell of a man who grew up with a dad who told him he'd never amount to anything, a dad who drank too much, a dad whose clenched fists meant bruises for his kids. When you look at him with the eye of a doctor, you see a man who's scared because he doesn't know how to change and he doesn't know how to have a meaningful relationship. Through the eyes of a doctor, you see a man with hurts that God can heal. We've been in Luke chapter 15 and specifically, the story that we're in at the end of Luke chapter 15 is often called the parable of the prodigal son. Open your Bibles there with me if you haven't already. 
In this parable of the prodigal son, it's a wonderful story. It's a story of this boy who tells his dad to drop dead, and then he goes and he runs off to a far country and he squanders away his father's inheritance, but then he comes to his senses and he decides to go back home. And when he does, instead of shunning him or kicking him out, the father welcomes him home with open arms. It's a wonderful story. And we see that and we think, oh, that's, that's great. I should be more loving and forgiving and welcoming. And we stop there. But that's only half the story, you see. And Jesus told the whole story, and when he did, his audience wasn't all teary-eyed and sentimental. They were outraged. They were thunderstruck. Because this story is not just a story of one lost boy, it's a story of two lost boys. You may remember that Jesus began this story by saying there was a man who had two sons. And both of those sons were lost. So we're about to read the end of this story together, and as we do, I want you to notice which character wears the eyes of a judge, and which character has the eyes of a doctor. Here's the scene. The lost little brother has just come home, and the father is throwing him a party that he doesn't deserve. So now let's look at what happens, verses 24 through 32. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who's squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So the story is that the older brother comes in from a hard day's work out in the fields only to find karaoke music shaking the rafters of his house. And now all of a sudden, the roles of these two boys are reversed. This older son who stayed home obeying is all of a sudden on the outside looking in. And the younger boy who ran away and squandered it all is inside being honored. And the older brother's not too happy about that. And I'm afraid today that for many of us, and myself included, we're in danger of being like that older brother, looking at people with the eyes of a judge rather than the eyes of a doctor. So let's look at some characteristics of this pouting son. First thing is this. Elder brothers have an angry spirit. An angry spirit. Now, I am the firstborn. I am the oldest child of six kids. I'm a trailblazer. I am a pioneer forging boldly off into the unknown. I caught the blame for everything. I shouldered the heavy load growing up. I'm a firstborn. Any other firstborns in the crowd today? Raise your hand. All right, that's right. Now, my wife, Rebecca, is the youngest child. She's the baby of the family. Any other youngest children in here? Now, keep those hands up. No, keep the hands up. Look around, people. These are the privileged few. Yes, the few, the proud, the youngest. I'm not saying you're spoiled, but I am saying you got everything you wanted, didn't you? Yeah, Uh uh-huh. 
Now, I identify with the older brother in this text because when his little kid brother comes home after blowing it all and rebelling against the whole family and he gets a party, the older brother's hacked off. And I probably would be too. In fact, the older brother's so mad that he takes his anger out on his father. The older brother refuses to go into the party, which would have brought disgrace on his dad, but his dad humbles himself anyway and comes out to plead with the son. And when he does, the older brother basically just says, hey, look here, old man, I deserve to be consulted about this. This is my money that you're spending now, and this costs way too much. Besides, it's ridiculous. If anybody in this family deserves a party, it's me. The older brother has an angry spirit. Because he thinks he deserves better. And you know, if you believe in your heart of hearts that because you've been pretty good and you're a pretty nice person, you're a decent spouse, you're an all right parent, you come to church, you work hard, you even give some of your hard-earned money and, and volunteer with some of your time. And if you think that because of how good you've been that God owes you a good life, then you're going to spend your life angry when it doesn't go the way that you want it to. An older brother says things like, well, God, I've done all of this for you. Don't you see? Why is life so easy for them? Why are they getting this? They don't deserve it, Lord. I do. Older brothers get angry when they don't get what they think they deserve, and that anger comes out against others when they look at people through the eyes of a judge. An older brother would see something. They'd see a single mom with no husband or no job skills, and they'd react with name-calling. Bum. What a leech on society. Get a job for crying out loud. Instead of looking at her with the eyes of a doctor and showing mercy and offering to help undo the damage that these vicious cycles of poverty and ignorance may have had on her, older brothers have an angry spirit. So let me ask you this morning, what, what makes you angry I've learned enough about myself to know now that when I get angry, that's a little warning light going off in the dashboard of my brain. And there are some kinds of anger that are okay. If you're truly getting angry about real injustice or if you're getting angry uh, on, on, on behalf of God, if, you're, if somebody has offended the holiness of God and you're angry because of that in a righteous anger, great. But let's be honest. Most of the time when I get angry, it's not because somebody offended God. It's because somebody offended me. Didn't give me what I thought I deserved. What makes you angry? Ironically, in this story, everybody else ends up happy except the brother who stayed home angry in his self-righteous obedience. I guess the fattened calf didn't end up too happy, but that's another story. <laughs> Secondly, older brothers serve in beautiless duty. I don't know if you noticed, but the ironic thing is that this runaway younger brother comes home and he says, Dad, make me a slave. But the father says, no, you're my son. And this older brother who stayed home thinks he's being a good son when in reality all along he's been a slave. Did you notice what he said to his father? He said, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. He did all the right things with all the wrong heart. We're calling this sermon hiding in plain sight because that's what this older brother was doing. He was there doing all the apparent right things, but behind all those rule-keeping things, he was hiding and his heart was really lost. He was a slave. Kind of like the Pharisees 
that Jesus was telling this story to. Oh, those religious people, they, they obeyed, they prayed, but it was a grind. It wasn't out of a loving relationship. It was joyless drudgery. And that's what this older brother did, and that's what we can do too sometimes in our faith. You know, Jesus was telling this story to church people who didn't think they needed to hear it because they kept all the rules and they had their lives together. So maybe you're sitting in the audience today thinking that you don't need to hear this, that this doesn't apply to you. And if you're thinking that, then Jesus is probably telling this story to you like he is to me. Some of us in here have had the privilege of growing up in church. You've been here for many years. I'm what you call a Buick. That stands for a brought up in church kid. I'm a Buick, all right? And I'm thankful for that. I really am. I had a, I had a great family, a great upbringing. I've, I don't remember not being in church. But the danger for those of us who've been around this Christianity thing for a long time is that we can fall into the rut of doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Just going through the motions when our heart's not really in it, keeping the rules because that's what we feel like we have to do. So why are you here? Are you here trying to earn a nice life or to get on God's good side or to keep the rules because that's what you feel like is expected of you? Or are you here because you're really in love with your father, God? You know, we can come to church and we can read our Bibles and we can pray and we can give and we can serve because we think we have to and we don't want to go to hell, but we miss the whole point. The point of the whole thing is a loving relationship with God himself. You see, this older brother looked like he was with the father, but in reality, he was lost just like his younger brother. The younger brother was lost and he needed to repent. He ran away and did wild living. He needed to repent and come home, but this older brother needed to repent of doing the right things in the wrong ways. They were the same. They, they both wanted to tell the father what to do. They both wanted the father's stuff without having the father himself. So maybe if you're living the Christian life so that you can try to earn your way on God's good side, thinking that God then would owe you a happy life or a good family or a fairy tale marriage or answered prayers or a ticket to heaven, then you need to repent because that's actually making yourself your own savior. Because even though this older brother appeared to be serving his father, he was really just doing it out of beautiless duty. He didn't really know and love his father. Thirdly, elder brothers have an inflated sense of goodness, of goodness. They think they're better than they really are. Look at verse 29 here. Five times the older brother uses this first person pronoun. This is the English standard version. He says, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And then he goes on to say, but this son of yours goes and blows all your money on prostitutes. Did you notice that he said this son of yours? He couldn't even call him his own brother. You see, older brothers love to compare themselves to other people. <laughs> I would never do something as bad as that. And when he compares himself to another person, he never comes up short, because let's be honest, most of the time we can find somebody who's living a worse life than we are that makes us feel pretty good about ourselves. When you compare yourself to another person, you never end up thinking that you're a sinner, which is why, church, we're not called to compare ourselves to other people. We're called to compare ourselves to God. And when we do, we will all fall woefully short. It's easy to look at somebody else who's living a wild and vulgar and openly rebellious life and think that, hey, we're pretty good compared to that. But when we measure ourselves up against the holiness of God, we're exposed for what we really are, wretched sinners. 
You may remember that Jesus wasn't telling this story to the rowdy crowd of sinners gathered around him. He was telling it to the religious people on the fringe. The Pharisees with corrupt hearts standing on the outskirts. The Pharisees who were alienated from the heart of God and they didn't even know it. That's what's dangerous about being an older brother. Because your sins are less obvious. They're less visible. So you can almost fool yourself into thinking that they aren't even there. You know, this week I was processing through this sermon and trying to talk through this whole older brother thing. And I was talking with Rebecca and trying to figure out where this older brother mentality is in me because I want to practice what I preach. And uh, I, I said to Rebecca, and I quote, you know, I've got a lot of my own sins. We all know that. But I just really don't think this older brother, something is, this older brother thing is something that I struggle with. <laughs> and my wife, who has the spiritual gift of convicting my socks off, um, told me very gently, you know, I think that's a pretty good indicator that you do struggle with this. <laughs> and I needed to hear that because so often I get caught at looking at other people with the eyes of a judge, comparing how they spend their time and they manage their money and they raise their kids. And I think, oh, that's fine for them. But I mean, I'm, I'm doing it the right way. I, I got this. I'm better than that. And I end up thinking that I'm pretty good. But those secret sins of the heart, those are sins too. Pride, jealousy, anger, resentment. You can imagine this older brother who thought he was pretty good out, out working in the fields, you know, humming along with his favorite songs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that helped out somebody who wasn't really all that bad like me. <laughs> They're all sinners and pagans who deserve to die, but I am a pretty nice guy. <laughs> and let's be honest with ourselves. We're not gonna say it that obviously, but we all kind of struggle with thinking that, don't we? We think we're better than we really are. That brother thought he was pretty good and it kept him out of the father's party. If we're honest with ourselves, if our life is a fairy tale, most of the time that we think we're Prince Charming instead of the frog who needs kissed. There was a lady who came up to her pastor one day and she said, preacher, I need your help. I've got this sin that I've been wrestling with for years now and I just can't seem to beat it. You see, every Sunday when I come into church, I just can't help but thinking that I'm the prettiest woman in the whole place. I look around at all these other girls and I just pity them because of how ugly they are compared to me. Pastor, I need your help. I can't get over this. I know it's not right, but I need your help. And the preacher said, oh, sister, don't you worry. In your case, that's not a sin. You're just horribly mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes we need a wake-up call to tell us that we're not quite as good as we think we are. We need to remember that we're unworthy and that our only hope is the grace of Jesus Christ. Older brothers have an inflated sense of their own goodness. And because of that inflated sense of their own goodness, lastly, an older brother has a faulty sense of grace. A faulty sense of grace. You see, this older brother thought that he deserved a party because of how hard he worked. And anytime you start talking about what you deserve, what you've earned, what you're entitled to, what your rights are, then you leave the realm of grace and you enter into the realm of human performance. Guys, let's not forget 
that on our own, the only thing we deserve is the fires of hell. We are dead in our sins and we must all cling to the cross of Jesus Christ. Whether you're hearing this for the very first time or you've been hearing it all your life, the grace of Jesus is still your only hope. You never graduate from grace. And it's only when we cling to that grace that we can start to look at people through the eyes of a doctor instead of the eyes of a judge. You know, the judge's eyes found Ted Bundy worthy of nothing but the electric chair after the serial murderer and rapist was convicted. He killed over 30 women. But on death row, Ted Bundy became repentant. And he surrendered to Jesus. And a man named Dr. James Dobson had the eyes of a doctor. And he developed a relationship with Ted Bundy and even spent the evening with him the night before he was executed. Jesus can forgive a man like Ted Bundy. Can you? Sometimes, if you're like me, deathbed conversions might bother you a little bit. Because here we are, And we're trying to live our lives for Jesus. We're trying to let him be the Lord and we're trying to surrender to him day in and day out for years. We wanna follow Jesus well. And yet here somebody is who's lived their lives completely for themselves, doing whatever they want all along. And then at the last minute in the 11th hour, they convert and they get to go to the same heaven that we do. It doesn't seem quite fair sometimes. Jesus told a story about that in Matthew chapter 20 told the story of a farmer who hired some workers to come out and work in his fields in the morning. And, and then about lunchtime, he hired some more workers to come out with the first batch and work in the fields. Then about mid-afternoon, he went back and got some more workers to come out. And then just an hour before quitting time, he went and got some more workers to come work in the fields. Well, five o'clock rolled around and the workers all quit and they're lining up to get their money. And the farmer starts with the people who'd only worked an hour. And he gives them a full day's wages. Then he started, goes to the people who'd worked just in the afternoon. He gives them a full day's wages. And then the people who started at lunch gives them a full day's wages. And then he goes to the people who'd worked all day out in the hot sun and they get a full day's wages. And they're understandably mad. Those people were just here for one hour. Why do they get the same amount of pay that we do? And the farmer says, are you mad because I'm generous? Let's not forget the grace of Jesus and what we really deserve. If you've been watching the news, you probably know that earlier this year, a man named Dr. Larry Nasser was convicted for molesting and abusing and violating dozens of women whom he was treating as their trusted trainer and doctor. And when he was exposed, countless people with the eyes of a judge condemned him as a monster. But the first of his victims to publicly accuse him and the last person to testify at his trial, a gymnast named Rachel Den Hollander, she viewed him through the eyes of a doctor. And she stood before this man who abused her and she said these words in the courtroom. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. And so it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know that the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially that he gave up everything to pay a penalty for the sin he did not commit. By his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, 
which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you speak carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. And it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Wow. Church, that's the gospel. So maybe you're like me this morning and you kind of see yourself in this older brother. And that's a scary thing. But there's good news because the father comes out to the oldest son and he doesn't reprimand him, but he pleads with him tenderly and he says three things. First, the father says, I treasure our relationship more than your work. The father listens to his boy's bitter complaint and then with tears in his eyes, he says, oh, my son, you are always with me. And I'm thankful for your help, how you bailed hay and paid bills and worked side by side with me planting the wheat all these years. But the best part wasn't the work you did. The best part was being together, you and me, the campfires, the water breaks, the bandaged knees, the late night snacks. I didn't want a servant, I wanted a son. It's not your work that I cherish, it's you. So if you're still trying to earn God's favor today, or maybe you're scared of him and you figure you better do all you can while you're here on earth so that you have a good resume for eternity, then you're missing the point. Because God wants you. He wants your heart. Secondly, the father says, what's mine is yours. He looks at his son and he says, are you bitter about not getting a billy goat roast with your friends? Son, I can give you that but I have something better going on right now and you're missing out on the party of a lifetime. And maybe right now you're a little upset at God because he hasn't given you the life that you wanted with perfect health or easy kids or a perfect marriage or money to spare. If that's you, then maybe you're missing the point because that's a scrawny little goat roast compared to the feast that God has in store for you. You have been made an heir of all God's riches. You are the recipient of an inheritance of all creation. You are participants in the boundless wealth of Christ himself. All that God has is available to you today in Jesus. So don't miss it by focusing on lesser things. And thirdly, the father says, it's my party, so come join me. In each of these three parables that we've been studying, maybe you've noticed that the last thing that we see is a picture of God celebrating. He's a rejoicing shepherd and a partying housewife and a running and hugging and feasting father. So how does this story end? Well, we don't know. Does the brother spit in his father's face and stomp off into the fields and nurse his bitterness a little longer? Or does he uncross his arms and walk hand in hand with his father into the house to celebrate his little brother's return? We don't know. But we do know that Jesus was telling this story surrounded 
by sinners, people who didn't deserve his grace. And then there on the outskirts were the religious people, the Pharisees. They were grumbling. And Jesus wasn't mad at him. He wasn't annoyed at him. But he tenderly, hopefully extended them a hand, hoping that they would join him inside his party. So will you? Can you hear the music? Can you smell the food? Heaven is preparing a party for sinners, and this church is meant to be a home safe for prodigals. So will you come inside to the party? When that pesky little kid won't leave you alone, will you react with the eyes of a judge and tell him to get lost? Or will you see him with the eyes of a doctor and give him a hug and let him help you and patiently answer his 10 million questions? Or when your husband leaves his clothes on the floor again or spaces out again and still isn't listening to you or your wife brings up that topic again, you know the one, the one she just can't get over, will you react with the eyes of a judge and nurse your bitterness and make a snarky remark? Or will you see them with the eyes of a doctor and wait patiently for them and give them grace and give her a hug or pick up his pants off the floor again? Or when your boss is a jerk and he sets unrealistic expectations for you or he takes the credit for your success or he stinks at communicating or he slacks off while you do the hard work, will you see him with the eyes of a judge and talk behind his back and slander him and badmouth him with your coworkers? Or will you see him with the eyes of a doctor and work hard even when you don't want to and build him up in front of other people? And when people in here grind your gears and annoy you and get on your nerves, and when people in the church don't fit your mold of how you think they should act or look, will you see them with the eyes of a judge or the eyes of a doctor? The eyes of a doctor like how God looked at you. Because I don't know if you noticed, but there's actually three sons in this story. There's the younger son who ran away and then returned, And then there's the older son who is full of bitterness and resentment. But then there's the third son, the son of God, who's the one telling this story. And that son left his father's house to come to a far country called planet Earth where he would die for our sins. And our older brother, Christ, came to find us and pay the price that we owed so that we could receive the father's inheritance. He wasn't disobedient like we were. No, he was obedient even unto death. He was stripped so that we could receive the Father's robe of righteousness. He was beaten so that we could be welcomed with open arms. He was forsaken by the Father so that we could be welcomed into the Father's family. And we're getting ready to come to a time of communion when we're going to celebrate and remember this Jesus, our older brother, who stepped down out of heaven and came to find us when we ran away. He didn't stand still and do nothing. Jesus Christ, our older brother, looked out at Pharisees and sinners like us, some of us prodigals, some of us older brothers, some of us both, and instead of looking at us with the eyes of a judge and seeing rebels that needed condemned, He looked with the eyes of a doctor and saw hurts that needed healed. We're gonna be up here for the rest of the service, Steve and I will, and if you've got something you wanna talk about or pray about, now's the time. Maybe you're a prodigal and you've been running away and it's time to come home, step into the party. Or maybe you're an older brother and it's time to repent of the judgmental attitude and the bitterness with which you live your life and to embrace his grace finally. Because... Jesus is preparing a party for sinners.
So come on in, let's celebrate.